So today, it's the first Sunday in 2018. Happy New Year. And with the new year, we're also starting a new sermon series. Today, we begin the first of three on the book of Jonah, a four-chapter book that's pretty short, found in the minor prophet section of your Old Testament. And we're doing things a little bit different with the sermon series. Here at Hinsdale Covenant, we have a shared pulpit, so usually pastors Paul and Lars take turns each week preaching. But for a number of reasons, I will be preaching this for, the next, for today and the next two weeks. And then I'll be able to spend some time with adult formation classes. So let's begin today with a text, Jonah 1. And usually we stand and someone reads it and we may follow along, but uh, actually don't open your Bible to Jonah chapter 1 because I'm reading from a translation that you don't have. And instead, I invite you to close your eyes and picture the story in your mind. The, the poet Billy Collins has this text, this poem, where he, it's called Introduction to Poetry, and he says to his students, take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide. And he says, walk inside the room of a poem and feel the walls for a light switch. And this is a kind of curious openness I invite you to be, approach the text with today. So the word of the Lord from the book of Jonah, chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, which means dove, son of Amittai, which means faithfulness, saying, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and cry out against it because its evil has come in my face. So Jonah got up and fled the opposite way to Tarshish, away from the face of the Lord. He traveled down to the port of Joppa and found a ship bound for Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into the ship to go with him to Tarshish, away from the face of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, a, a great hurricane, so that the ship threatened to break up. And the sailors were so afraid they shrieked, each to their own gods. And the sailors hurled cargo overboard into the sea to make the ship lighter. But Jonah had gone down into the hold below deck, lain down, and fallen fast asleep. And the captain approached him and said, What are you doing asleep? Get up, call out to your God. Perhaps your God will think of us so that we won't die. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let's cast lots and see who is responsible for this evil. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us whose fault it is that this evil has come to us. What's your work? Where do you come from? What's your country? Who are your people? Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And hearing this, the sailors became more afraid, and they said, What have you done? The men said this because they knew he was running from the face of the Lord, because he had already told them. Because the sea was moving and raging, they said, what should we do to you to make the sea be silent for us? Jonah said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea to make it be silent, because I know it's on account of me this great storm has come to us. Instead, the sailors tried to row back to land, but they were unable to do so because of the storm, because it walked and raged against them. 
So the sailors cried out to the Lord, Oh, please, Lord, don't let us die on account of this man. Don't hold us guilty of shedding innocent blood, for you, Lord, have done what it pleases you to do. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea stopped raging. And the men greatly feared the Lord, and they vowed vows to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the guts of the fish for three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. You can open your eyes now. Thank you. Um, so we're going to switch trajectories real fast. Uh, I want to remind you of car chases in films. Perhaps you've seen one. I, I'm thinking of some of them from the Blues Brothers, the film from 1980. And there's this one where the two guys run from the police, and then they end up having a car chase through the mall. It ends with a wrecked Toys R Us and Pier 1 Imports. I just loved the old sign there. And Jewel and uh, upside-down police cars and confused people and thousands of dollars worth in damages, at least in the 80s. It would be millions now, probably. Um, and a broken watch. Remember this car chase or some car chase you've seen. I'm going to take that and just set it aside for a moment. We're going to go back to Jonah. So Jonah, at least in chapter 1, is kind of the story of a chase, right? This is a story of God chasing Jonah. First, the story of Jonah isn't really a story about a fish. Sometimes we think it is, and that's what we remember. But that's not really it. It's a story about a prophet, one who's not described in very pleasant terms who might be the worst prophet ever, a man whose name is pretty ironic. Jonah is Hebrew for dove, and then Amittai means faithfulness. So Jonah, son of faithfulness. Doesn't that sound wonderful? But we see in the first chapter how unfaithful Jonah is. Within two verses of the introduction, he has demonstrated that he's anything but faithful. Jonah is, in fact, the antithesis of faithful. So God says, get up and go. And Jonah gets up and he flees. He doesn't just flee. He flees from the face of the Lord, which is often translated the presence of the Lord. And he flees in the opposite direction God tells him to go. God says, get up and go. And it would have been kind of northeast, Tarshish, uh, Nineveh, kind of northeast if he, if he was in Jerusalem. But instead, he flees toward Tarshish, which is across the sea. It's the end of the earth. It's Timbuktu. So he goes in completely the opposite way. And not only does he go the opposite way, the text is really clear to describe this descent that Jonah is taking. So he flees down to Joppa. Perhaps he's in Jerusalem, so that would be down. And then once he's in Joppa, he flees down to the ship. Think of a port city you might have been in and how you had to go down toward the water, right? And then once he gets on the ship, a few verses later, he goes down into the hold of the ship. And, and this is wonderful foreshadowing because if we know the story, we know that he is not done going down, right? But that's for another chapter or another sermon. He's three times down, down to Joppa, down to the ship, down to the hold. And he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord, from the face of the Lord. And it's fascinating because Jonah doesn't seem to have any shame about this because he just tells the sailors. He just told them in verse 10. It's kind of a little flashback. 
They knew he was running from the face of the Lord because he had already told them. So you can imagine people taking passengers' fares to board a ship. Tell us the purpose of your trip. Well, I'm going to visit my grandma. Tell us the purpose of your trip. Well, I would like to trade these items. Tell us the purpose of your trip. I am running from the face of the Lord. That's Jonah. Okay? But why is he running? Why is Jonah so faithless? We might not know this, but this is pretty apparent to the ancient reader because when God says, get up and go to Nineveh, the light bulb goes off because the Ninevites were part of Assyria, and Assyrians were some of the worst ancient people ever. Some have said that it is the Assyrians who invented genocide. The Assyrians took really great records of the kind of violence they did. They made images of it, and they wrote about it. So this wasn't violence that they were trying to hide. This was a violence that was an achievement. You can go to the British Museum and see reliefs of some of the images of people who were skinned alive, of piles of bodies with separate piles of heads. When one city resisted being taken captive, the king of, at the time, Ashurnasapal, punished them and then wrote about it. And this is what he said. I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpses. Some I spread out within the pile. Some I erected on stakes upon the pile. I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. He is proud of this work. And the Assyrians were enemies of the Hebrew people. And so to us, this looks like this is why Jonah ran, right? He's afraid. He's afraid he's going to be flayed. Or maybe if he's not afraid, he thinks, this is kind of a futile missionary exercise, God. Me against them? They're not going to listen to me. They have their own gods. Or maybe he hates them. Maybe he hates them so much, and he's so angry that he doesn't want to go. These are all great assumptions we can make, but actually, this isn't what he says. Later on in the book of Jonah, when he has a dialogue with God in chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah tells God exactly why he ran away. And this is what he says. Jonah prayed to the, God, to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. This is why he flees. He doesn't flee because he hates the Assyrians, although he, he might, or because he's afraid of them, or he thinks this might be a futile task. Jonah runs from the presence of God because he doesn't want God to be God. He doesn't want God to be gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, a God who relents from sending calamity. This is why Jonah runs away from God's presence. Jonah knows God. He knows the face of God. And he doesn't like it. So he's fleeing. So here Jonah is at the bottom of the ship, and God hurls a storm. And that's, that's the Hebrew. He hurls. And not just a little storm, a tempest, it's described, a hurricane. And it deeply frightens these experienced sailors. And we can imagine that these, these sailors are tough guys. But they're shrieking. They're shrieking to their gods and hurling stuff overboard. And so the, the chief sailor, the captain, goes down to the hold of the ship and wakes up Jonah. And to me, I think, 
How, actually, how can you sleep during a storm like that? I've been in boats when there has been a lot of waves. I don't know how one could sleep, but somehow Jonah's sleeping, and the captain says, how can you sleep? It's a question we all wonder. Get up. Call on your God. And in the meantime, the sailors are up on deck, and they cast lots to see whose fault it is. And this means draw straws or roll dice. And, of course, guess who wins? Jonah. And so they pepper him with questions. Who are you? Where are you from? What's your occupation? But he, he doesn't answer all the questions. He just kind of answers two at the same time. He says, I'm a Hebrew, which tells who he is and where he's from. And then Jonah says one of the best things he says in the whole book. He actually carries out the missionary task. He says, I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And when the sailors hear this, light bulbs go off. Because in the ancient pantheon, there was a God for the dry land and a separate God for the sun and a separate God for the sea. But Jonah's telling them, that he worships the God who made these things. So the supreme God, Yahweh. And they think, oh my, that's it. This guy has angered the God who made the sea. He's already told, him, told them that he's running from God, but this God, this God who made the sea and the dry land? And, and so the sailors say to him, what should we do to you who has angered the God who made the sea and Jonah says, throw me into the sea. It's almost a sacrifice for ancient people who believed that the sea was a deity, right? Just sacrifice me to the sea. If you sacrifice me to the sea, it will calm down. And this is how badly Jonah does not want to see God's character revealed to Nineveh. He doesn't say, turn around and let's go back so I can go east, back to Nineveh. What would it have been like if he would have said that? But he doesn't. He says, just throw me overboard. I'd rather die. He wants to die so that he doesn't have to see God's loving kindness demonstrated to Nineveh. And he says it so nonchalantly, too, right? There's the, the wind and the waves and the water, and they're all scared. And Jonah says, hurl me into the sea, and it will calm down for you. But the, the sailors, they exhibit some faithfulness. They don't want blood on their hands. They don't want to kill someone who to them seems kind of innocent. And so they try to row back to shore to save Jonah's and their own life. I mean, this is really honorable action, but it doesn't work. They have no other options left, so they offer a kind of confession prayer to Jonah's God. They pray to Jonah's God this time, not to their own other gods. And then they hurl, and that's the word, they hurl Jonah overboard. And immediately... The sea is silent, and the sailors recognize this was the God who made the sea and the dry land, and they vow vows to offer sacrifices. And we can think about this a minute. That they were on a wooden boat, right? Are you going to build a giant sacrifice on a wooden boat? Is that something smart for an experienced sailor to do? Fire at sea, anyone? They don't. They have to go back to land. So they have to take their trajectory and turn and go in a different way. So their interaction with Jonah and with God, because of Jonah, it changes their life. They have to go off the course they had planned to. They've learned about the one true God. 
And then God appoints, and appoints is a really important word in the book of Jonah. He appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah is inside the fish for three days and three nights. This is a chase story. Jonah's running from the face of God, and God follows, and, and so does chaos. But this chase story is different. Rather than it ending in destruction with a destroyed boat and dead sailors maybe floating in the water on bits of boat and Jonah at the bottom of the sea, it ends with sailors who have turned toward the true God. It ends with a boat that's not wrecked, and it ends with Jonah not drowning in the sea. This is, we can go back again. Now take that image of the car chase scene we had later. We're going to go back to that now. So let's go back to this car chase scene. What if after a car chase, upside down police cars, a smashed Pier 1, a broken watch, there was a sort of different wake left by the chase, a wake that made things better than they had already been. In the tire marks on the floor of the mall, the broken tile grows a garden. The people who are running away from the cars so they don't get hurt, they don't experience more chaos. But maybe someone who's trying to get in a way in a wheelchair, they're suddenly able to stand up. And what if a thief who just stole a woman's purse right before the cars passed, what if that thief turns and returns the purse? What if a, a parent holding an infant who's crying because of the chaos and the noise and the sirens and the smashing, what if that infant stops crying and starts to coo? What if the mother and daughter arguing in the clothing shop about which dress to buy? What if they stop arguing and reconcile? What if we have a wake of redemption rather than chaos? I, I've never seen this movie. I don't know if somebody would make it. It kind of sounds ridiculous and absurd. But this is what's happening in Jonah. In the wake of Jonah's faithless fleeing, God redeems. And so jo Jonah, son of faithfulness, he's not being faithful. He's running away, and God is chasing him. But instead of destruction, there's redemption. The sailors meet Yahweh. This is not a story about a fish. It's a story about the worst prophet ever. And maybe that's hyperbolic, but it's pretty bad. This is a story about Yahweh. This is a story about the God of the sea and the dry land. And it's a story that shows us the character of God and the power of God to both send a storm, calm a sea, provide a great fish, and also to reveal himself to an entire boatload of sailors so that they have to change trajectories. Tim Mackey, who's a biblical scholar, describes the book of Jonah as a satire. The language in Jonah, it's especially in the Hebrew, it's very extreme, it's very punchy, it's very hyperbolic. It's kind of like a satirical sketch. And satire, both theatrical satire and literary satire, functions by making things extra extreme, extra weird, in order to expose a vice. And at first we laugh, like, ha ha, that's so funny. Nobody would ever do that. And then we think, oh my, that's me. That's how satire works. And, and this is how Jonah works. We're invited to look at the actions of this ridiculous prophet who seems to believe that he can run away from the presence of the Lord, which if you've read other parts of the Bible, Psalm 139, we can't flee from God's presence. God is always present. We say, ha ha, Jonah, don't you know you can't flee from God? 
And we think, oh my, I tried to do that. Maybe I haven't gone down and down and down into the hull of a ship, but that's me, that's us. Our ways of running are much more subtle, but we do run away. And sometimes we are faithless. And even when we don't run away and we do the right thing, sometimes it's very half-hearted, and Jonah does this too later. Sometimes, like Jonah, we refuse to participate in the mission of God. And, and then when we do participate, it's often half-hearted with little to no faith. But the good news is that God's work is not contingent on our participation. God is active in the world, whether or not we participate. But the invitation to participate is there because God deeply wants to have a relationship with us. God wants us to live in God's presence. And even, and we're so blessed because even so much more than Jonah, we can know what the presence of God is like because we have seen God through the person of Jesus Christ. We've seen God's face. We have the opportunity to experience God because of the presence of the Holy Spirit given to people all over the world and us too. In Jesus, God came down to show us love and flesh and to get down at our level so that we could understand God, at least in a small way, and see the face of God through Christ. The challenge challenge of the story of Jonah, I think, is that we're given this magnificent 30,000-foot view of God's actions in Jonah 1. Jonah runs away, but we get to see the turn of the sailors. We get to see them vow vows and say they're going to offer sacrifices and turn, but Jonah doesn't get to see that. Jonah's swimming for his life or in some gross guts of some fish. He doesn't get to see that. He doesn't know it. And for most of our lives, I think, our perspective is not one of 30,000 feet saying, oh, look at the redemption God did. Our perspective is so much more the perspective of our own life, which doesn't see everything because, you know, surprise, we're not omnipotent. And so I think this is a challenge of Jonah for us, is our own opportunity to be faithful, even when it's so easy to be faithless because we don't have the perspective of the narrator of Jonah. Jonah's called son of faithfulness, and it's ironic to us, but the truth is all of us are invited to be sons and daughters of faithfulness of the God who is faithful. And I, I want to invite you this morning to consider a different metaphor aside from the, the weird one with the in the wake of redemption where there would usually be chaos. And this is a, a metaphor we use in the Alpha program, and so we're going to show a short film from it that shows us another perspective of how God takes our sin and our brokenness and our mistakes and the things that we think we're doing right, and later on we realize that was dumb, and, and works a good out of it and shows redemption. So let's watch this together. In the mid-19th century, the British aristocrat Lord Radstock was staying in a hotel in Norway. One evening, he heard the sound of a piano being played horribly in the hallway downstairs. He looked and saw a little girl who was making the most terrible noise. He was normally a patient man, but slowly the continuous racket began to drive him mad. As he watched, a man approached and sat down beside her. 
Rather than stop the little girl's efforts, the man began to play, constructing chords alongside her. With each keystroke, his playing complemented her notes, and suddenly a breathtaking sound filled the whole hotel. He took her mistakes and discord and turned it into something utterly beautiful. As Lord Radstock later found out, the man playing alongside the girl was her father, the famous 19th century Russian composer, Alexander Borodin. And this is a picture of, of us, and the way God wants us to participate in God's redemptive work. I want to take an opportunity for us to spend a, a brief time in silence, an invitation for God to work through us, for God to join us on the piano bench, for us to scoot over and say, God, I don't even know how to play the piano. Or God, I'm trying my hardest and it does not sound good. To invite God to lead and guide and take the main part and make beauty out of things we've messed up, or things that we've tried, or regrets, mistakes, sadnesses, sin. We'll take a moment of silence to pray in our hearts to Jesus, and then I'll close in prayer. <laughs> 